right, well, here we are, and welcome to Church on the Couch. Uh, this morning we are in part two of a nine-week sermon series called The Engaging Gospel, Why the Gospel is Still Good News. Last week I was introducing this series, and if you missed last week's sermon, uh, you might want to go back and catch up because there were some good introductory remarks in there, and last week's sermon was a little bit different than the next eight weeks will be. Last week, we mostly talked about the idea of what is the gospel. Um, if we're going to talk about why the gospel is good news, we need to start first by acknowledging or finding out, well, what is it? What is this gospel? Uh, before we can answer why it's good news, we really have to understand what it is. And, and so if you didn't see last week's, so I'd encourage you to go back and check it out. It's available on our YouTube channel, or uh, sometimes you can find it on our website, although sometimes it, it does take a couple weeks to get them uploaded there. So for the next eight weeks, including this week, it's going to be structured just a little bit differently than last week's. The first thing that we're going to do every week is we're going to start out by looking at a question. So we're going to look at a question. Now this question might be one that our friends have uh, when we try to talk to them about Jesus. It might be one that we have inside as we uh, you know, prepare to talk to our friends about Jesus. Uh, it might be one that we've heard from others in the past as we've told them about Jesus. Uh, but regardless of how we've heard it, because it is a common question that we will hear or we, we could hear, uh, we need to know how to answer this question from it comes up. And so from out of that question, the next thing that we're going to do is we're going to look at the problem. Um, usually the question that we're going to look at is a, is a, a bit of a, a precursor. It's a bit of a surface level. And underneath there's a root problem that this question is kind of hinting at. And so when we look at the question, we're going to take that question. We're going to try to uncover what the root problem underneath is or what the problem that this question is really getting at or asking. And so from there, after we've identified the question and the problem, the next thing we're going to look at is we're going to discuss what the good news is. Well, what is the good news then? When Jesus was in situations, he was good news for the situation that he was in. To the broken, he, he offered restoration. To the lost, he, he found them. To the ones who needed forgiveness, he offered forgiveness. So what is the good news that is available in that situation? And then from there, we're going to say, well, what do we share? What do we tell others about the whole thing? So that's kind of where we're going to go over the next eight weeks. The questions might not always have the exact same uh, focus. Sometimes they might be internal or external, but that's kind of where how our format is going to be the next eight weeks. So let's start this week with this week's question. Now, I think that some of you might have come across this question. I've certainly come across it in my life. When I've been sharing Jesus with people, I've come across this question before. Uh, I come across it fairly regularly in terms of questions that people have about Jesus. And so you might have come across this too. And the question is, maybe there is a God. Maybe there is a God, or maybe there's a divine power or some sort of deity. But if there is, what difference does that make to my life? The idea is, well, maybe there is a God, but what difference does that make for me? What difference does that make in my life? That's the question we're going to look at today. And so as we look at that question, I think we need to uncover the first step of that is, well, what is the root problem that this question is getting at? And so what is the problem? Philip Yancey wrote a book a while ago, and it was called, What Good is God? It was a really pertinent book. It was really a good book that kind of got at this, this question that we're looking at. Is, even if there is a God, what does that mean for my life? What does that have anything to do with the way that I live my life? And that's what Philip Yancey's book was about. And I was looking at this problem, What Good is God? That question is becoming more and more and more prevalent today as our society becomes more obsessed and identified by self. And so we we're more interested in ourselves, we're more interested in how things affect me, not so much my brothers and sisters, but me personally. And so more and more people are asking, what good is God? Or what difference does it make to my life if there is a God? 
A recent survey was, was trying to uncover root problems in Western culture today. They were trying to uncover why, why does Western culture have the problems that it has? So they looked at a lot of issues and problems in our society. They looked at things like alcoholism, they looked at things like drug abuse, they looked at things like depression, anxiety, and so many more problems or issues that arise in Western culture. And when they were trying to get at what some of maybe the core issues were, some of the, the major issues, and what they uncovered was something much deeper than they intended. They pointed out, or they pointed, uh, their research pointed them that the root problem of a lot of these problems or a lot of these issues, the root problem that lay at things like alcoholism, uh, depression, anxiety, drug abuse, the root problem there was something laying just below the surface. Those things that were on the top, the, the alcoholism, the drug abuse, those are just symptoms of something much deeper. And the root problem that they uncovered that was much deeper was loneliness. They uncovered that people were lonely. The people in the Western culture, we're very lonely. We're extremely lonely people. People are lonely. This was the number one problem identified in their report, that people in Western culture, especially people in North America, were lonely. We're very lonely. Likely this last year, a lot of us have come face to face with the loneliness that we've never experienced before. A loneliness that we never thought we would experience in life. We've perhaps been confronted by a loneliness that we could never grasp or wrap our heads around. People are lonely so much now, more than you know ever in decades before, that in 2016, the UK actually set up a commission uh, and placed in a minister of loneliness. A minister of loneliness. And this commission's job was to start to tackle this massive issue of loneliness in their society. Because people are lonely. We have this deep feeling inside of us that something isn't right. That there's something wrong in our lives. Perhaps we didn't measure up to what we expected our lives would be. Or perhaps we didn't, we didn't measure up to the standard. Or perhaps we don't even know what the standard is that we're supposed to measure up to. Perhaps we thought our life was going to go one way and it's turned out this way. We have no idea why. But whatever it is, there seems to be something missing in our lives and we are lonely. We crave that something. That's the root problem that this question we're looking at gets at. That people are lonely. There seems to be something missing in our lives. The thing is, we weren't built or designed to go through life alone. One of the problems with the fact that we are lonely is, is that we crave community. We crave relationship. We, we crave acceptance in community and acceptance in relationship. We crave a loving acceptance. And why do we crave this community though? And we're so lonely because we are craving this community, this loving acceptance, but why do we crave this loving acceptance? Why do we crave community? And the answer is that we were literally designed for it. We were built for it. Genesis 2 verse 18 God looks at everything he's made. He's just made everything in the world. He's made these mountains, the, the sunsets, the animals. He's made everything in the world. And every time he makes something, he looks at it and he goes, and it was good. He says, I made this thing and, and it was good. And then he rests and he makes this other thing and he says, and that's good. And he rests and he makes man and he puts him in the garden. And he looks at man and he says in verse 218, he says, it is not good that he's alone. It is not good that he is alone. Let's make someone for him. This is the first thing that God says is not good. Everything else he's called good. And the first thing he says is not good is loneliness. It's not good that this man that he placed there lacks community, lacks real relationship. It's not good that he's alone. 
Because God knew that loneliness was going to be a problem. God knew that loneliness was a problem. We weren't designed to be alone. We were not designed to go through life by ourselves. A great reminder is, is the fact that we are built in the image of God. We talk about this. We say, we're, we're built in the image of God. We all reflect the image of God. And if, if, we, if we truly believe we're built in the image of God, then that means that we reflect, albeit a different nature or perhaps a distorted nature, we reflect God's character, at least portions of God's character. We reflect who God is. That's what it means to be built in His image. And one of the things that God is, is He is pure community, pure relationship in His personhood. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist in perfect unity in God. Perfect relationship is part of who God is. And so if we reflect that, then that's why we crave that. Perfect relationship is part of who He is, and we are created in His image, which means we crave that relationship. We crave that community. We crave that perfect loving acceptance. Because not we, we know inherently that not just any friendship would do on like, you know, a Facebook friendship or a texting friendship, not just any friendship, it fills that need in our lives. The average person, even though we're lonely, has 700 friends or more on Facebook. I know I have almost a thousand followers on Instagram. I wouldn't call that the place that I go when I'm seeking community when I'm seeking closeness, when I'm struggling with loneliness, I don't go to my Instagram app to, to find some relationship. We long to be loved. We long to be accepted. We long to feel truly part of a community, to be truly part of a relationship. So the question was, well, what good is God or what difference does that make in my life if there is a God? And what does, difference does this make to my day-to-day? -day? And the problem that that question is getting at is that people are lonely and crave a real accepting community, something that is part of their life, something that impacts their day-to-day. -day. And so what do we call the good news then? What is the good news in this situation? Well, the good news is that we can find that love, we can find that acceptance, that loving acceptance, we can find that in God. See, God created us out of love. God created us out of love for love. See, I've always been just enjoyed or overexcited by the fact that God didn't have to create us. God didn't need to create us. There wasn't something missing in his life that he said, you know, I really need to create humanity. He didn't have to create us. No one forced him to create us. No outside force act upon God and said, you have to create these humanity. God wanted to create us. He desired to create us. And he created us to become objects of his love and affection. He created us so that he could show us love. He created us to love us. God is love. God doesn't just show love. God is not just loving, but it is love is a very part of what it means to be God. Love exists in perfection in his character. So when you think of a perfect example of love that is perfected, love is perfected in God because it's part of who he is. There's a really beautiful explanation about this in 1 John 4, 7 to 21. I'm just going to read it all for you. It's a bit lengthy, but I want to read it because I think it's just absolutely beautiful and how it describes love. So John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might come alive through him. In this, 
is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loves us first. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, then we should love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is so, also are we. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates their brother, he's a liar. For how does he love his brother who he has not seen? And he can't love God who he has seen then. Sorry, I, I read that wrong. It says, how does he say he loves his brother whom he has seen? And he says that he loves God whom he has not seen. This commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now it's a bit lengthy, and so I'd encourage you to go grab your Bible. Flip to 1 John 4, 7 to 21. And read it. And what I want you to notice when you read it is I want you to look for some key words in there. It says it in there a couple times. It says, God is love. It describes all these loving things God does for us. And then it says, God is love. It says, this is love. That God did this. That God did this. This is love. God is love. Over and over. It says, we can love others because he loved us. And why does he love us? Because God is love. His love is perfect love. God is the source of love. And because of us, he loves us so much, he accepts us and loves us right now as we are. See, the beautiful thing about God's love is God's love is not conditional. Our love is often conditional. We love others as long as they treat us with respect and they love us back and they're, and they're courteous to others. If you're rude to me and if you treat me terribly, well, I'm not going to love you. That's kind of how our world acts. Our love is conditional upon a lot of things. But God's love is not conditional. It's unconditional. God loves you and there's nothing that you could do to make him love you more or love you less. God loves you just the way you are. God created you to love you and he's going to love you no matter what. Nothing you can do is going to stop him from loving you. Most of us first experience love at the hand of our parents. Right? We experience this loving acceptance from our parents. Now, our parents generally, and, and obviously this isn't true for everyone, but generally most of us experience loving acceptance from our parents. They would love us and accept us no matter what. When I was growing up, I made a lot of mistakes. Uh, I know it's hard to believe, but I wasn't perfect. I'm not perfect. It's, it's tough to believe. But uh, when I was growing up, even though I made a lot of mistakes, I knew know how to bat or know how, no matter how big the mistake was, uh, my parents would still love me. I know. I knew that no matter how badly I had screwed up, no matter how badly I'd messed up, my parents would still love me. They might be hurt. They might be angry. They might be sad. They might be disappointed in me, but that wouldn't stop them from loving me. They would still love and accept me no matter how big that mistake was. 
And so if our parents who are just simple humans and, and imperfect simple humans just like us, if they can love and accept us, no matter how hard we fall, how much more will our God be able to love and accept us? How much more will our God, who love in perfection is who he is, it is a very part of his character, how much more will that God love us? So the good news that we can share is that God is love, and this is a loving acceptance for each of us. So if we have the question, we have the problem, we know what the good news is, what do we share with others? What's our message to share? I want to quickly read a story for you in Luke 7, 36 to 50. And I want to make a few observations for what this story means for us and what we have to share. So Luke 7, 36 to 50. Now, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and he, and he reclined at the table. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life that learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair and she kissed him and she poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him. He said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And Jesus said, Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50 denarii. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, and so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, Well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus said, You have judged correctly. And then he turns towards the woman and he says, Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them and with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, Simon, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, Simon, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that can even forgive sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There are two specific, or I'm going to say there are a couple, but there are two specific people here who experience loving acceptance at the hands of Jesus. And I want to point those out. Now, there's a lot that could be unpacked in here. There's so many great, I could preach a whole series on just this interaction here because I think it is one of the most important interactions in the entire gospel. But I just want to point out two people who experience loving acceptance in this section. And the first person who experienced loving acceptance is Simon. Now, Simon was a Pharisee. Now, some commentaries are going to paint all Pharisees, or they, or they seem on the surface anyways, to paint all Pharisees as Jesus' enemies. Now, it is certainly true that a good portion of Pharisees were Jesus' enemies. It's certainly true. Uh, but not all of them were evidently enemies of Jesus. 
Most commentators will acknowledge that. They'll say, well, not every Pharisee would have been an enemy of Jesus, but, you know, there was obviously some who were, and there was, a, you know, at least a vocal majority who were. It's like, you know, to say every Pharisee was an enemy of Jesus is like saying that every politician is corrupt. You know, I'm sure that there are some corrupt politicians, perhaps a majority, perhaps a minority, but I'm certain that not every single one of them is corrupt. So, so Simon is a Pharisee, and, and we can't say that they were all enemies of Jesus. So we were not sure where Simon lands. What's his motive for inviting Jesus over? Perhaps he was inviting Jesus over because he genuinely wanted to learn. Perhaps it was to spite him and embarrass him. Perhaps it was sneaky. Perhaps Simon just really liked having fancy dinner parties, and he wanted another fancy dinner party, uh, as one commentator assumes. And so regardless of his motives, we know that Simon has invited Jesus over. Simon is a Pharisee. Jesus is not. So regardless of his motives, one thing that we do know is that Simon was still associated with the Pharisees. So he is still associated with a group of people that are actively against Jesus. It would seem a bit odd to find him having dinner there. It seems a bit odd in our culture today if we look at it that way. It would seem, you know, why would Jesus be having dinner with, with those people who are against him? You know, we don't often eat dinner with our enemies. And so it seems a bit odd that Jesus would be eating in the house of someone who is associated with his enemies, even if he's not directly an enemy. But see, the thing is, it's not odd for Jesus. Jesus was totally down to go to Simon's house for dinner. Jesus did this all the time. He went and he hung out with people who everyone else would not hang out with. All the societal norms say, don't associate with that person. And Jesus says, okay. I'm going to associate with that person. That's the kind of guy Jesus was. And so Simon invites Jesus to his house for dinner, and Jesus says, absolutely, I'd love to come for dinner. I'm going to come for dinner. So the first thing that we see is that Jesus isn't going to hold it against Simon that he is a Pharisee. Jesus isn't going to hold that against him. He's going to accept that, and he's going to go have dinner with Simon. But see, that's not the only way that Jesus shows loving acceptance to Simon. It says in our section today that Simon was basically uh, bashing or mocking Jesus in his head, right? In his head, Simon sees what Jesus is allowing. He goes, "Ugh! if this man was really a prophet like he says, he wouldn't allow that dirty, sinful woman to touch him, right? That's what Simon is saying in his head. So he's, he's kind of, he's, he's, he's mocking Jesus in his head. He's being ignorant towards Jesus in his head. And Jesus, we know this, Jesus is able to, to see what people are thinking and when, when he desires or when he wishes. He sees what they're thinking. He sees their thoughts. And so he sees what Simon is thinking and he's like, I'm going I'm to speak to that. right? He, he's going to confront that. But he doesn't do it in a way that we would expect from our culture. You know, Simon is saying rude things. And our culture would tell us that you should fight back or you should say something rude back. But not Jesus. Jesus doesn't blast him. He doesn't go, hey, Simon, listen here, you big doofus. I got this to say to you. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, well, you know what, Simon, you're a this and a that. And, you know, yell at him. He doesn't call him a bunch of names and, and say those things. He doesn't speak rudely back to Simon. He still shows this sort of loving acceptance. He does speak to what Simon is saying. He says, well, listen, I'd like to talk to that. And he speaks to it, but he doesn't do it in an ignorant or angry way. He does it in a still loving, accepting way. And there's one more time where I believe Jesus shows Simon uh, probably the greatest example of loving acceptance here. And that's right at the beginning uh, of this story, when Jesus enters Simon's house. Now, in this time period, uh, for someone who's wealthy, like Simon is, Simon is a, is a wealthy person in this story, having big dinner parties like this was a, was a big social affair. Uh, if you were a wealthy person in the time period, your house would actually be constructed with uh, a sort of courtyard in the middle of it or, or sometimes in the front of it. 
in this courtyard would kind of be open uh, and you'd have a large table uh, and you might have like um, at the table you wouldn't have chairs because they didn't sit at tables they actually reclined at the so they would have sort of a cushion or maybe a couch type thing and you would lean on this couch type thing uh, on your left always your left shoulder and you'd lean on it and your feet would be backwards out towards the back or the end or the you're behind the table this table's here and I'm I'm leaning this way with my feet that way and so the whole kind of house would be built around that, and it's kind of a big, uh, a big affair. If you're having a big dinner like this, you would be having this for a special guest. So you you would have these big dinners at special guests, and for a big occasion like this, where you have a big special guest, the doors to the house would be left open. The, whole, the doors right into the courtyard are left wide open because if you have a special guest at your house, you're not trying to hide that person. You want everyone to come. You want everyone to come, so you can be like, look at. Look at this famous person that I have at my house. Listen to all the wonderful things that he or she has to say. So you'd want others to come and hear what your special guest has to say. Your special guest is going to be probably talking at this dinner. And so you want everyone to have the opportunity to hear what this person has to say. It's a bit of a status symbol. You know, if the queen wants to come to my house for dinner, I'm not going to keep it a secret. I'm going to tell everyone that the queen is at my house for dinner. I want everyone to know the queen chose my house to come to dinner. It's a status thing. I would, you know, I want everyone to know, say, well, she chose me. I don't know why, but... It's nice, right? And so that's kind of what's going on here. It's a big deal. Having a big dinner party like this is not just some, you know, small dinner party where you had one or two people over. This is where really anybody could come. And this is a special dinner, and you only do this when you would have a special guest. Because there's a special guest at the dinner, though, there is a bit of honor that is due to that guest. You know, the special dinner, it's in your house, but to the, to the special guest, there's a bit of honor due to that person because you're opening the door so that people come hear that person speak. And Jesus notes some of these things. In Jesus' rebuke of Simon, if you notice it, he says, Simon, you didn't offer me any water to wash my feet. He says, you didn't anoint me with any oil. And he says, you didn't greet me with a kiss. And Jesus says that to Simon. He says, you know, Simon, you didn't, you didn't do these things for me. See, in those times, the, the, the roads were all dirt still. Uh, the roads were dirt and, and sandals, you know, they were open toed. They weren't like, uh, you know, the shoes that we have today. They might have been a piece of material with perhaps a strap lashed around it and it was lashed to your foot. And sand in the desert, it would have been hot and sticky and gross. And so when you would go home, you would wash your feet. And especially if you were invited to a fancy dinner party like this and you're the special guest, they would likely have someone there with a nice bowl of cold, fresh water to wash your feet. It would be cooling, it would be soothing, it would get all that dirt and muck and grime off of it. And, and, and so this would be offered to wash your feet and someone would likely wash your feet for you, again, to show you a bit of honor and the esteem that as a special guest you're due. Also in that times, for an honored guest like this, uh, where the, the, an honored guest has been invited for dinner, uh, you would be greeted with some type of an, an anointing. Often they would take a drop of a, uh, an oil or a scented perfume or something and they would put it on your head and they would often put it on the very top of your head and they would speak it over you and they would speak a blessing to you when they did it. And so you'd be met with this blessing and this anointing. It was a, again, it was a, an honoring for the special guests. And so this would have been expected for Jesus. And finally, the kiss. Again, the kiss was a very common way to greet someone in this time. It was a greeting of respect and intimacy, and you were showing a honor and esteem and respect and an intimacy to that person, a friendship. Uh, it's still actually practiced in many places. In France today, it is still a custom. In Russia, in many Arab countries, the, the kiss is still a very uh, regular greeting for uh, an honor, a greeting of honor like this. Um, 
it's like the best way we could describe it in our culture is it's kind of like a handshake. We would we would associate it with a handshake. It is a, a respect, an honor, and it is a sign of intimacy. But Jesus says, Simon, you did none of these things for me. You didn't greet me with a kiss. You didn't anoint me with a blessing and oil. You didn't wash my feet or offer water to wash my feet. Now, it's interesting that most scholars say that Simon should have had to do these things. Most scholars, uh, they'll say Simon should have had to do these things. He should have had to. Um, more recent scholars, a couple more recent ones that I came across, said that he, Simon didn't necessarily have to do those things. Uh, it's not like he was he he, he was demanded. He, he absolutely must do those things. But by purposefully not doing those things, Simon was making a very clear point. Simon was making a very big statement. So even if he didn't have to do those things, it was certainly the norm. It was certainly what would regularly happen at a very special dinner like this for your honored and special guest. You would do these things to honor that guest and show esteem and and praise and and you know honor that guest. And so by Simon not doing that, he was making a statement. He was saying something by not saying something. It's like, you know, I pictured it in today's world. It's like if you extended your hand for a handshake for me and you said, you know, hey, Luke, great to see you. And I simply looked down at your hand and then walked away. You know, I didn't shake your hand back. You said, hey, Luke, great to see you. And I just, and walk away. It would be disrespectful. You would likely feel slighted. You would probably think I was being quite rude if I did that. Even if I didn't say anything, if I just went and walked away, you'd probably, be, you'd probably feel I was being a little bit rude. But the point is I want to make is that even though Simon did this to Jesus, even though at the greeting, at the door, many of these things were supposed to happen. There was supposed to be an anointing. There was supposed to be a kiss. When he sits down, he's supposed to have his feet washed. None of that happened. Jesus still stays and has a dinner at Simon's house. He still stayed for dinner. It doesn't say Jesus got all offended when these happens and threw up his arms in a fit and said, oh, I'm out of here, right? It doesn't say he did any of that. Jesus was still there for dinner. Even after all of that, Jesus showed a loving acceptance towards Simon. The first person that I think loving acceptance is shown towards. And the second person, <coughs> pardon me, the second person that I think Jesus shows loving acceptance towards in this story is the sinful woman. Now, in the version that you have, it likely doesn't say it. It doesn't say what kind of sinful woman she is. It simply says a sinful woman. It might say a sinful woman from the town. The way that it's written, the way that they think Luke writes this, they think that most scholars are saying that Luke is implying she's a prostitute. The way that it's written, they think Luke is, is implying she's a woman of the town or a prostitute. So likely they think that's the kind of sin that she was engaged in. Now, if we think back to the, the big fancy dinners again, we're reminded that the courtyard is open, right? The courtyard is open because the, the, the host of the house wants everyone to come in and say, look at, look at this fancy guest I have. Look at this big, beautiful dinner I'm throwing. You know, let me display a little bit of my wealth and my power and my privilege. Look at my honored guest. And so the doors are open. And so anyone can come in. Anyone is invited in. And so this woman, who's probably a prostitute, comes in. Now, most people would have just simply ignored her like she wasn't there. They would not have looked at her. They certainly would have spoken to her. They would not have said anything. They would have just ignored that she was there. But this woman, she comes in and she sees Jesus. She wants to approach him. And she wants to wash his feet. And she wants to anoint him. But instead of being able to come over and properly anoint him and properly wash his feet, she breaks down. Her emotions get the better of her. And she weeps. And she cries on his feet. And she weeps on his feet. And she takes her hair 
and she washes Jesus' feet gently with her hair. And then she takes his alabaster jar, and an alabaster jar of perfume was something that was very common for women in that time period to wear. They would wear a perfume around their neck in this alabaster jar, this little jar, they would wear it. And so she takes this jar of perfume and she pours it on his feet, and she anoints him with feet, and she starts kissing his feet. Now there is a lot to be said about these three things. Three, three things she does. There's a lot to be said. We could preach a long time about these three things and how important those three things were, but I'm not going to touch on those three things. I mean, just her having her hair down was a cultural statement that, that could be a sermon on its own. There's no way she would have had her hair down if she wanted to be respected. And so we're not going to touch on any of those three things that she did. We're not going to touch on those at all. I want to simply point out, Simon says in his head, he says in his head, he says, if if this man was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman that is. He would know what kind of a sinner that is. He would know what kind of a prostitute is touching him right now. And Jesus knows this, and he senses Simon, and he says, Simon, I want to tell you something. And he tells that parable. At the end of the parable, he says, Simon, do you see this woman? And I think that's the most one of the most important things he says in this. He says, Simon, do you see her? Do you see her? He doesn't say, Simon, do you see this prostitute? Simon, do you see this sinner? Simon, do you see this dirty, gross sinner? Simon, do you see how culturally inappropriate her hair is? Simon, do you see this gross perfume that she's put on my feet? Simon, do you see how she's kissing my feet and how no one likes her? Do you see these things? He doesn't say any of that. He says, Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her? I think Jesus is making a huge statement to everyone there. And I think we gloss over it. He's making a huge statement to everyone there. Jesus was saying to Simon, he's saying, Simon, I see her when I look at her. When I look at her, I see a woman. I see her. I see a person that I love. I don't see her sins. I see her. I think that's what Jesus was saying. In this moment, Jesus was saying he sees her. See, Jesus sees you. He doesn't look through you and see your sin. He doesn't look through you and see all your mistakes and all your failures and all your shortcomings. We all have failures. We all have mistakes. We all have shortcomings. All of us have sinned. He doesn't look through you and see those sins. Jesus looks through you and sees you. He sees a child of God. He sees someone deserving of love. He sees someone who was made to be loved. But I don't think we're very good at that. How many of us are guilty of when we're out driving in the parking lot, perhaps to Walmart or Canadian Tire, and that beggar approaches from outside our window, we drive the other way. How many of us, when we're at a stoplight and on that center strip of concrete, we see the, the, the homeless person approaching us with a sign begging for money? How many of us roll our window up and pretend there's something super interesting off to the right over here that we have to stare at? How many of us do that? How many of us don't even look at that person in the eye? How many of us cross the street to avoid the person under the bridge overpass because they've passed out from drugs or alcohol and we just cross away so we don't have to deal with them, we don't have to look upon their sin? How many of us do that? I think Jesus asks us, he says, do you see him? Do you see her? Or are we so focused on seeing their sin? 
Are we so focused on seeing their mistakes, their shortcomings, their failures, that we miss them? We miss who they are. I think the best news that we have to tell others is that we have a God that sees them. We have a God that sees them for who they are, not the mistakes that they made. We have a God that sees you. Jesus saw this woman and he knew she was a prostitute. He knew she wasn't accepted. I mean, he would have just seen her hair coming in and known that there was something wrong with the way this woman was carrying herself. He would have known these things. He knew full well who she was and what she had done. And he looked right past her sin and looked at her. He looked at her. He accepted her fully knowing who she was and what she'd done. Because when Jesus looks at her, he didn't see a dirty, gross sinner. He saw a child of God. He saw one that God had created to love. And so he did what comes naturally to him. And he loved her. He just showed her love. The question that we might have been asking or people might have asked us is, what good is God? Even if there is a God, what difference does that make in my life? And the difference that people are want in their life, and I think this difference they're looking for is that they're looking to be accepted. People are lonely. We're struggling with being alone. We crave a loving acceptance. We crave a real community, a perfect relationship. And we're not going to find that anywhere in the world. And so the good news is that this love that we're craving, this, this thing we're craving, doesn't exist in the world, but it does exist in God, who's in the world. God built us for that. He designed us for that. We have a God whose character is love and acceptance. And the message we need to share with the world then is that God sees you. God sees you. God doesn't see your mistakes and your sins and your shortcomings and your failures. He doesn't look at that and see those things plastered all over your body. He sees you. And he loves you. He knows your name and he cares for you. You are loved. You are accepted. You are enough. That's the good news of loving acceptance. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your loving acceptance. Thank you for a love that loves us just as we are. It doesn't see us for our sins and our shortcomings and our failures, but sees us and loves us just as we are. Thank you for a love that looks at us and doesn't see a sinner, but instead sees a child of God, one who you created God to be loved. You created us out of love for love. God, if we are struggling with loneliness today, if we are struggling to find acceptance, would you call us close? Would you show us your loving acceptance? Jesus, if, we, if we're afraid or if we're guilty of, of not showing people this loving acceptance, if we're guilty of, of keeping this good news, this gospel to ourselves, push us. Push us outside of our bubbles. Push us outside of our little safety spheres and help us take this good news of loving acceptance to everyone we meet. Jesus, inspire us to tell of our friends and tell our families all about you. Help us to not keep this good news to ourselves. Good news is meant to be told. It is meant to be shared. And so help us share this good news with the world that so desperately needs to hear it right now more than ever. A world that is lonely and isolated and afraid. Help us show them you. Help us point them to you. In all this we pray. Amen.